0: Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. China's first space station, Tiangong one has come crashing down to Earth, but this week we find out about space station's history and how we keep space clear from debris and safe for years to come. It involves a lot of complicated science and cleaning up after yourself. So that's why we're going to find out this week about the dangers and science behind space junk. Changong one translates to Heavenly Place 1. And it's part of China's ambitious space program to, by 2023, have a permanent large modular space station in the orbit around the Earth. And that's one part of China's very, very ambitious space program. Now, Gong one or Heavenly Place-1, was launched in 2011, and basically was their first foray into space station technology. And space stations are very, very complicated things, so that's why they launched this first system. It's 10.4 metres long, and it's roughly cylindrical in shape, much like the very early space stations from Skylab, or, in the Soviet group, the Salyut and Mir class of space stations. Now, Chang'e-1 was generally expected to be decommissioned in 2013, but like most space missions that continue to work, they let it keep running, extending it a couple of times all the way through to around 2016 when it became pretty apparent that it was no longer responding to ground control, which meant that sooner or later, it would fall back to Earth. Now, in December 2017, China advised the United Nations that they expected... Chang'e 1 to come crashing down to Earth in March 2018. Now, Chang'e 1 actually, by the way, is not the only space station currently in orbit from China. They also have Chang'e 2, Heavenly Place 2, which was launched in 2017, very early on, just to keep China's presence in space ticking over. Now, what happened to Chang'an-1? Well, if you've probably seen the news reports, you'll see that it crashed into the Pacific Ocean, the largest ocean on the Earth anyway, which is a good, safe place for it to land, at around 0015 GMT, Greenwich Mean Time, northwest slightly of Tahiti. Now, it did miss the Space Graveyard, which is basically a large stretch of the Pacific Ocean where we expect most things to go crash, because it's such a good target that that's generally what we aim for. It was a bit off that point, but it did manage to land safely in the water. And why is that a big deal? Well, it hasn't happened necessarily in the past. For example, when the United States Space Station, their first major space station, Skylab, which was launched in 1973 and went through all the way to 1979 before it crashed back to Earth. When Skylab fell, it was predicted to actually land, the remnants of it anyway, in South Africa. But instead of landing in South Africa, it instead landed in Western Australia, on the other side of the Indian Ocean. So that just goes to show that even when you're trying to crash something, it can be incredibly difficult. So well done to the China Space Agency team to successfully land Chang'e-1 in the ocean. We talked about this space graveyard. What exactly is it? Well, most of it's centered around a place called Point Nemo. It's named after the Jules Verne submariner Captain Nemo, and Nemo also translates from Latin to no one. Hence, the Captain Nemo Captain No One being a bit of a joke that Jules Verne was playing. But nevertheless, Point Nemo is a point between Australia and South America, and if you draw a line roughly around where the tip of Tasmania is, all the way across through New Zealand, all the way to the lower end of Chile. Somewhere in the middle of that, around 2,688 kilometres from the Pitcairn Islands to the north, Easter Islands to the northwest, Maha Island, part of Antarctica to the south, lies a very, very remote place. It's pretty much the furthest point from any other point of land on the planet. That's why Point Nemo is a target point for a lot of space re-entries. It's pretty much the safest place to aim for. There's also not much marine life around it, so when people are actually trying to crash a spaceship, that's sort of the point that they pick. There's around 250 to 300 spacecraft have carved a blazing path of glory as they try to re-enter Earth's atmosphere and aim for that point. The largest object ever to actually touch of the water at point nemo in 2001 was russia's Mir space lab which weighed around 120 tons or at least what was left of it when it crashed landed into the earth now it's scheduled when the international space station finishes its mission which is anywhere from 2024 if it's not extended if it's extended that'd be more like 2028 it is likely the 420 ton space station to land somewhere or at least aim to near point nemo to join the 300 or so and rising collection of space debris located there. So, if you're a space archaeologist, and yes, that's a real thing and a real career, people who investigate not only space debris, but the leftover of remnants of any space missions, both physical and digital or archival, they love Point Nemo because it's a good place to go collect. But it also serves an important serf- service by keeping space junk from harming people and potentially causing damage to life and limb. So if you ever come across a piece of space junk, you really shouldn't touch it, and that's not just because it might be incredibly hot. But a lot of the fuels and chemicals used as part of space launches or re-entry can produce a whole variety of cocktail of dangerous chemicals that can lead to your demise. For example, if there's hydrazine on board, it can be particularly corrosive and toxic. And Hydrazine is basically a remnant of what's often used as a propellant. And that can corrode through your skin, can react with water, it can cause all kinds of complicated and messy, dangerous reactions to you that would more or less wind up killing you if it gets into your skin and into your blood. So if you find some bit of space debris, report it in, because people need to know that, that it's landed, and let the professionals deal with it safely. Far better to wish on a falling star or a shooting star than actually to try and grab one. A key piece to understanding the China Space Agency's plans with the Chang'e Heavenly Place space stations is to look back to what the United States, and probably more equivocally, the Soviet Union, did in the 1970s. Basically, the Soviet Union had the first space station launched, which was the Salyut-1, which was launched in April 1971. And they were monolithic. One piece had everything that that space station needed launched up with it at the time. And there are around... Five or six other Salyuts launched between 1971 and 1973-75. 1970, Skylab itself, the American response, was launched first in 1973, and it had a good run of five years. Now, the second generation of space stations as we know them weren't those single monolithic types. It was rather modular space stations with pieces that bolted in and out. And that's what MER, the Russian space station, launched in 1985, that re-entered Earth in the late 90s. That was an incredible feat of engineering because, well, it was bolted together and had new modules added from time to time. And it served as a testing ground for ideas that would later go on to be implemented in the International Space Station. Now, the International Space Station began as an idea in the 80s as called Project Freedom. But by 93, after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was more opened up to European and other partners, and Bill Clinton rebranded it the International Space Station. When it was finally launched in '98, it served not immediately as a fully formed space station, but as one that was assembled and built with launches after launch, with new modules and new labs being added on. Now, the International Space Station, as we mentioned before, is scheduled to finish its mission in 2024, and there are some future space stations planned. Some, like the Russian plan OPSEC, may use some modules from the International Space Station as, as, as the launching point or base for its new modular expansion. There's also a couple of private industries, like Bigelow Industries, who have planned for a space hotel, that are progressing along with some plans, but we'll, we'll yet to see how realistic that one ends up being. There's also the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway, and that's the new American plan one, now, that whole basis for that station is to serve as a launching point for missions out towards the moon. And by basically, it will be the testing ground for part of, effectively, the staging point for future missions back to the moon. It is in NASA's 2019 budget and would be part of the deep space transport program for going to the moon or to the moon, either or, really, depending on the direction of NASA. Maybe even at one point it was decided to try and use some of that technology for the asteroid redirect mission but it's a large collaboration like the international space station with partners like the european space agency nasa the russian space agency jaxa the japanese and the chinese space agencies ideally it should be constructed in the mid 2020s so that's the future successor for the international space station but it's not finalizing its design just yet or its purpose now we talked about Chang'e Wang, Heavenly Place 1, and it's the way it fits into this whole picture. Like the early Soviet missions, it is monolithic. They're basically using this to test the technologies for automated docking and those modules. And China has its own plans for what they would call the Chinese Large Modular Space Station. Now, it has a couple of different modules all connected into it. Tianhe, the Harmony of Heavens module, which is kind of the cool hub. And there's the it gets resupplied from the Chanzhou, the heavenly vessel, the cargo spaceship, and then also the different Shenzhou manned spacecraft as well. So the, between the Chanzhou, or the redocking cargo ship, and the core module, it, it generally be assembled over time. And they're aiming for 2019 for that. So all these Gong missions have been the launching point, literally, for the starting of the Chinese development of modular space stations. So much in the same way that the Soviet Union in the United States, with their partners, did that in the 80s and 90s, China is playing quick catch-up, building their own modular space stations. So though Chang'an One is falling to Earth, it's a great sign of things to come, with them rapidly accelerating their own plans to have another new stable space station, before the International Space Station has finished its mission. So there's some great achievements from the Chinese Space Agency. And as it falls back to Earth, we have to acknowledge their plans they've got in the future and the great engineering effort that led them there in the first place. So aside from losing control of this space station, why do we care about it falling to Earth? Well, it's actually incredibly important that it does actually come back to Earth because junk in space doesn't just hang around waiting for you to tidy it up. Well, it does hang around, but it's also traversing in orbit thousands of kilometres an hour. And even a small fleck of paint can cause immense damage to anything in orbit or passing through. So if you're launching a space Ship, or maybe a satellite for a communication system or having a space station itself hanging around in orbit, you have to be very, very worried about space debris. As I said, a small fleck size of paint can punch holes through the side of a space station. If you look at things like the space shuttle, you could see wings peppered with small fragment holes. Now, there's some ways we can protect spaceships. For example, whipple shielding, which is a really thin layer of a, of a metal. When something like dust or maybe a small particle or a micrometeoroid hits this Whipple shielding, basically it punches a hole through that thin wafer layer, but it vaporizes and basically melts away along with the debris. That means everything sort of has time for it to get to a safe point before it actually hits the main body of the spaceship. And that helps, especially with micro debris. But anything larger than that, well, it's really quite problematic and for example, there's more than 170 million pieces of debris as of July 2013. So that's a long time ago and the number is increasing all the time. Those are 100 uh, So that's 170 million pieces of debris that are less than a centimeter in size. And there's a lot more larger than that. Now, NASA is currently tracking based on the latest reports from January around 18,000 large pieces of debris or artificial objects in orbit around the Earth. Now, 2,000 or so of those are operational satellites, and the rest of those large objects, well, they are large pieces of space junk left over fairing from a launch vehicle, old dead defunct satellites, or large sections that have broken off from a satellite where the rest has fallen to earth. And that is a real problem. As I said, small pieces of debris can do huge amounts of damage, but a large object, well, that's even worse. So what do you do about it? Well, generally, you can do a couple of things. For example, NASA has now in place a new policy where they generally try to encourage people to go one up, one down. If you're putting up a satellite, you also want to be making sure you can try and take one down at the same time. Don't keep filling space as big as it might seem with all kinds of junk. We have other programs with things like SpaceX where they're trying to make reusable launch vehicles where they don't have a lot of junk being left in space. That's very useful as well. Now, sometimes we can actually get a satellite if we still have control of it. Before it finishes its mission or gets to the end of its life, you try and park it in a a dead zone orbit, a graveyard orbit, where it can be navigated through and away. And so that way, you can let other spaceships up without having to worry about crashing into a dead one. But of course, that's all well and good, but people will need another ways of cleaning up all that small micro-debris. That's where where people like the Japanese space agency JAXA had a probe that they launched in 2014, which basically dragged huge net behind it. Now, that net upon deployment didn't exactly work fully, but it's an idea of a concept. Another one is basically sweeping a large laser broom to vaporise any small debris it comes in contact with. And these are the kind of things we have to consider. Other programs, including the European Space Agency, e-reorbit which should be launched in 2021 is basically aimed to pick up big pieces of debris and tow them either using a harpoon or other means into either orbit or destabilize them enough that they fall back into earth and that kind of tugboat style operations also might be required for example in the case of chungung one it had been deactivated or lost contact with since 2016 now that's a lot of time for it effectively to be junk hanging around up there so maybe you could push that using another method or another mechanism, down into a way that could get it to burn up on re-entry faster than waiting till now, which is two years. Now, that's that's part of a process, and there's no formal rules and regulations for this yet. Technically, the launching country and the mission designer country are responsible for it, but there's no real way to enforce it. And it's something that we do need to be worried about, because as many types of theories out there, including ones known as Kessler syndrome, or, which is basically that you head, get to a point where there's so much junk in space that if you have one collision or one maybe one big piece of junk hitting a spaceship or a satellite, it causes a big exponentially increasing cascade, which produces more and more and more and more junk, and this is expanding and inflating amount of junk in space, which makes it then impossible to launch anything that kind of resonance cascade is uh, potentially possible. And we just want to make sure that we clean up space to prevent anything like that from getting close to happening. So as big as space might seem, we do really need to care about space junk because even the smallest fleck of paint can do an immense amount of damage. So that's why tidying up after ourselves and getting space stations or spaceships or satellites that are defunct and failed to fall back to Earth and burn up is one of the best things we can do. So whilst it maybe seems sad that Gong one has crashed back down to Earth, it's actually practicing responsible behavior from China by cleaning up after themselves. And that's something that all nations who are launching into space, whether it be your small cube satellite to the largest of new space stations from the European Space Agency, Russia, the United States, or China, they all need to make sure they look after space so they can continue to enjoy space for science and for commercial purposes, like communication satellites and you name it. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Point. So when it comes to space junk, we need to make sure we clean up our space, and that's exactly what China has done with their space agency of bringing One back down to Earth, and we look to more great things from China space agency in the future. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.